Well, good morning. It is good to be here, gather with you all as we come together to, to worship God this morning. If you are you're new or visiting, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church, and we are glad that you're here with us this morning. If you are new or visiting, if there's anything you'd like to communicate to the church, there's a connect card on the seat in front of you. We would invite you to, to fill that out with any information you'd like to pass along. You can drop those in the, the wooden boxes that are on the back wall on your way out this morning. Those boxes on the back wall are also where tithes and offerings can be placed. So just to kind of give you a heads up, kind of schedule for this morning. So we have gathering together for worship now. And then after the service, I invite you to go downstairs, enjoy coffee and treats with us. And at 10.30, Children's Sunday School will start downstairs. And, and over in the library, I will lead a class called Habits of the Household about parenting that we'd invite you to be a part of. And then at 10.45, Eric, who's also leading worship this morning, will lead uh, a question and answer session on, on the sermon. That's kind of the, the flow of what we're looking for this morning. We'll invite you to be a part of any of that that you're interested in. A couple of announcements to bring to your attention. So at... At 2 o'clock today, there's a, a baby shower for, for Cami Stewart. They, her and Ian prepare to welcome their new baby in the near future. So we'd invite you, to, invite you women to be a part of that here at the church at 2 o'clock this afternoon. Second is next Saturday from 8.30 to 1.30. There's a, a No Regrets Men's Conference over at Faith Church in Woodruff. They're hosting, and so we will take the church van over there about so we can gauge, kind of make sure we have seats and know what we need. If you are, want to drive or ride in the church van over to Faith, would you call the church office to let us know that you are planning to do that so we have a, a sense of how many people we need um, seats for. And then finally, coming up on, on February 16th, we're going to have a, a movie night here hosted by Fun Club. So it'll be kind of a kids appropriate movie but all are welcome to come and attend and the dinner will be at six o'clock for that and then the movie will start at six thirty so I invite you to be a part of that. If you are doing the our fighter versus scripture memory with us, last week verse was first uh, Thessalonians five seventeen or fourteen through seventeen. It's up on the screen there and then this week verse it's a continuation of the same passage is verses eighteen through 22 of 1 Thessalonians 5:18, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5. So we'd invite you to, if you're memorizing that, those are the verses for this week. Um, and you'll hear in a minute in the sermon just how like, God is used even memorizing that this week for me, preparing for this sermon, I think. So just a, an encouragement that there is fruit in, in memorizing Scripture. The passage this week it's Galatians 6, and one of the things we talk about in that sermon, kind of the main idea of that sermon, is that we should go in light of all that God has done for us in Jesus to do good for others. Um, this morning we have Randy and Sue Ann Van Adder with us, and they are doing that, and so they're going to come and share a little bit about what they're doing to um, yeah, bless others by starting a, a transitional home and by just thinking to bless others um, through that. So I'm going to invite Randy and Sue Ann to come. Thank you. 
Good morning. Anin Suan Adijanakaz Indanashanabeu Majada. That's the totalitarian of my Ojibwe language that I've learned. But I said my name is Suan. I am Ojibwe. And I said, let's begin. So um, I work in Lacta Flambeau. I'm a tribal member of the Lacta Flambeau tribe. Um, I was adopted out and raised on a different reservation because my parents were alcoholics. Um, so as a baby, I went into foster care. We lived in Chicago at the time, and um, God divinely allowed um, I, as a baby, and my four-year-old brother to go into a native foster home on the Stockbridge Reservation in Wisconsin, and they just happened to be Christians. And so I was adopted along with my brother and raised in a Christian home, and so I found the Lord early in life. Found my birth family in Lacta Flambeau, and uh, now we live in Lacta Flambeau. I know my whole birth family, and God confirmed that I was definitely meant to be um, not raised <laughs> with them, and, but I can love them and, and be friends with them, and we're very close now, and, and so I have a calling not only to my birth family, but I believe my tribal people. I want to introduce my husband, who is mostly Norwegian, and let him introduce himself. <laughs> Uh, technically not mostly Norwegian, only 25%, but it's more than anything else, you know. So anyhow, uh, as she said, you know, God uh, divines our, our path and our future, and I am a recovering alcoholic, years in my childhood, or not childhood, but young adulthood, until I was 26, I did all that stuff, and then I found, found God, but it wasn't just an aha moment, it wasn't through church at first, it was through a uh, a treatment center, halfway house, which doubles as a transitional living center, but it wasn't a Christ-centered, you know, place. So, but I was blessed to have that in, you know, that's that type of uh, environment. I went back home to my family, my parents' house for a little a short time, and then I found the halfway house that I worked at for years, and then I found God through that transitional uh, part of my life. So I was one of the lucky ones that had a place to go, that had a, a nice environment to go to after I got out of treatment, after I found that. But I know that not a lot of people do. And that's what we're trying to do is find a place or make a place to have for people to go to uh, after they get out of treatment or in prison or whatever it might be. Uh, because, like I said, I was one of the fortunate ones that had a place to go. Yeah, so we kind of make a team right now that the Lord brought together. Our story is much longer, and, and we've been given a very amount, a specific amount of time to share today. <laughs> um, so, so working in Lacta Flambeau now, I'm a psychiatric nurse practitioner, and uh, I started in 2019 in this role for the tribe. And daily, daily, I am seeing the heartbreak, the brokenness, the death, um, that comes with alcohol abuse, drug addiction, homelessness, trauma. And so every day I was just praying to the Lord, I, what can I do? I need to do more. We need to do more. And so as um, time went on and seeing that people were coming in and out of jail and they were doing well and then they were gone, then I'd find out they're in jail again. They had no place to go to after jail or prison or treatment to help them transition back into life again. 
And so, um, so the addictions continue. We have a lot of funerals in our community, um, overdose, a lot of lives are spared because there's a lot of overdose attempts um, and they, they live through it um, amazingly. So I pray every day that God would uh, allow to uh, protect them until uh, we have this ministry going. And so I uh, met with the Alpha ministry team through the Rock uh, Mission Center who go into the jails. They saw from their end, as they're doing the jail ministries, that people are finding the Lord, they're hopeful, and then they end up coming back into jail. So on their end, they were also saying, where's the help um, for them once they leave the jail? So we also are part of starting um, a church in Lacta Flambeau. So we opened the doors in October. We're not calling it a church because of the history sometimes that comes with the tribe and just the title church, it's a gathering. So it's the gathering at Lacta Flambeau. Um, and we meet on Sunday evenings. We start with food. Um, it's more informal, uh, a lot of storytelling uh, with the culture. We want to um, make sure that they know Jesus is also a true story, <laughs> along with theirs. Um, and so, yeah, we meet in Lacta Flambeau. It's a, kind of like a little coffee shop, cafe place. And we called it The Gathering, Mama Gone people gathering together to grow in our faith in Jesus. So, because uh, the answer is always Jesus, right? So, there are programs, there are programs and programs, truly, but if it does not bring Jesus, it's not lasting, it's not eternal, it's not um, bringing that salvation that comes, uh, that's not just a program, it is life-saving. So, uh, we also want to make sure that people have a place to grow. Um, so if they go into the Transitional Living Center that we hope that the Lord will allow us to open, then we also have a church body that the people in Lacta Flambeau will also be able to go to. Now this will not just be for Native people. So I had initially, because that's my heart, of course, but the Northwoods is full of people, Native and non-Native, who also need this. And I believe that having a center, starting with men first, I believe God had asked us to start with men first, having Native and non-Native people find the Lord and then find um, healing in the races because there's a lot of animosity and racial tensions between the Native community and the non-Native. That will bring healing, and then that will have a ripple effect to their families and hopefully bring healing to the races as well and stuff. So, uh, yeah, between the communities. And what's my next slide? Sorry. Okay, so uh, we have a, a wonderful story of hope that we have visited a few other transitional living centers. There's a Hayward House of Hope. The WASA started one, a, a transformational living center. So we're getting advice and direction on how we can start that. Soon after visiting the Hayward House of Hope, um, my nephew, who was caught in the world of drugs and addiction, especially in losing his father, who would be my brother who was adopted with me, um, who died. So he was 12 at the time. He was a pallbearer for his father. And uh, he calls me and says, Auntie, I need help. And he's never called me for help. And it was three days after we visited the House of Hope. And um, God divinely allowed him to go there. August was one year. And so August, he was sober one year. He was born again, saved, baptized, training for ministry. 
as I saw this <laughs> truly. And everybody who knew him didn't know if he would live. So all of our family, this is inspiration that it's not just a program, it was Jesus. So this is exactly the uh, hope in the story that we want to offer for others. So we believe um, it'll be probably a year to year and a half, potentially long program. I want it to be self-sustaining, meaning we will have gardens and animals and chickens and eggs and everything that we will, they will work the gardens and work with the animals to be able to be self-sustaining. Um, we have a few, we have a lot of dreams, but right now we're at the point where we are gathering people who want to be a part of it, who want to be in any role. The prayer team, it's a spiritual battle for sure if you want to be um, included in prayer, if you want to be in the leadership, if you want to be on the board of directors. We're just at the point where we're hoping to uh, file the 501c3. We will need lots of workers afterwards, volunteers. We um, have purchased some land. We have 40, 40 acres of wooded property that were, um, it's out in the boonies. <laughs> there it is, <laughs> all trees, you can <laughs> see it. <laughs> and um, if the Lord allows, then that's what he wants, or maybe that's where the gardens and the animals will be. But I'm excited. Um, and so if God has ever stirred your heart, if you know anybody who's battled uh, this world of addictions, you know um, the, the odds of their lives, right, playing with drugs and alcohol and stuff. So I ask for your prayers for this. I ask for the people who are waiting, who need this Transitional Living Center for the leadership people. We will be here at the end to um, answer any questions. You can find us, we'll stand somewhere, uh, wherever Melissa says. <laughs> and um, we'll take your name, email, and stuff, and I'd love to know you if this is something that you would like to be a part of. Thank you so much. Thank you. Would you join me in praying for Brandy and Sue Ann? Father, we, we thank you for the work you've already done individually in, in Randy and Sue Ann's life to draw them to yourself, to work through sometimes difficult circumstances to, to reveal to them your love for them in Jesus. And then we pray for them as they seek to begin this transitional center, as they seek to point others in desperate need to Jesus. Pray that you would give them insight and guidance and wisdom that you would assemble the team around them to uh, help bring the dream to fruition and for that you, by your great power and might, would, would do great things through this center and through Randy and Sue Ann to draw people to Jesus and to restore lives that have been hurt and broken by drugs and alcohol. But you you'd be with them and that you would do just a mighty work through this center. Pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to transition now into a time of, of singing and, and worshiping God through song. And as we begin to do that, would you join me in a, a time of silence?
start our worship time. We're going to sing a song, but before we do that, we're going to call each other to worship by reading together a, a responsive scripture reading. So if you would at this time, if you're able to stand, and we will worship the Lord, starting with a call to worship. Follow the prompts on the screen. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to the Most High. It is good to proclaim your unfailing love in the morning, your faithfulness in the evening. Accompanied by a ten-plus stronged instrument, a harp, and the melody of a lyre. You thrill me, Lord, with all you have done for me. just saying you are indeed worthy of our praise, of our adoration, of our obedience, of all glory and honor and praise. So that's why we gather here this morning is to remember and to rejoice and to praise you because you are indeed so worthy. And yet, Father, we confess that we are quick to forget your worthiness. We are quick to 
focus only on ourselves, we are quick to make choices that show that the most important thing to us is our own desire and our own fleeting happiness. So, Father, as we gather here now, we we come and we confess our tendency to to focus on ourselves. And we pray that as we gather, as we sing, our hearts would be reoriented towards your worthiness, your glory. Father, we thank you that you forgive us for all the times our hearts are prone to sin, prone to wander, prone to fulfilling our own selfish desires. Above all, we thank you for Jesus and how he died for us to, to free us and to forgive us for all our selfishness. Father, I pray we live now in light of all that Jesus has done for us as we go out from here into the world that our lives could be dedicated toward showing others the, the beauty and glory of Jesus and our heart to be all about doing good to others. Father, we pray for those in our church family who are hurting and who are suffering. Pray that we would be people who come alongside them and bear their burdens with them. I pray that you, by your mighty power, would assure them of your goodness and of your love for them, that you would bring healing where it's needed, that you would bring strength for perseverance where it's needed, that you would bring comfort where it's needed. Father, above all, I pray that we would live lives that bring you honor and glory and praise. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm over here now. We're going to continue in our service. We're going to watch uh, a Bible Project video, one that I found useful because of the Bible reading plan I'm doing this year. So I'm going to do a brief plug. You know, Pastor Tim has encouraged us to do a reading through the Bible plan every year. And last year he recommended the Bible Project one titled One Story That Leads to Jesus. And I'm here as a testimonial. I usually am unable to read through the Bible in a year because I just get, it doesn't become important. It's difficult to do. But this plan, One Story That Leads to Jesus, kept me engaged every, every once in a while. There's one of these videos that not only is informative, it helps to make the passage that you read right after you watch the video make more sense. It's good. This year I'm looking at watching a different one. It's called The Biblical Storyline, and it gives you the readings in the order in which they appeared in the Hebrew Bible, the ways the Jews had it at Jesus' time. It's much, much different. Our Bible has it organized in order of size. The big ones are first, and it goes to the short ones. That kind of makes it difficult to understand if you're reading through the Bible. So that's one that I'm doing. So anyway, I encourage you to do that. And if you struggle to do it, there's a lot of plans out there in the Bible Project ones are good. If you want to learn how to do that, tag me at the end of the service. So now with that as a plug, let's watch the video and then we'll sing some more. <laughs> 
So I've got a question that's always bothered me. The Bible says there's one God, but in other parts of the Bible, God is three, Father, Son, and Spirit. How can it be both? Yeah, this is a question that has mystified people for thousands of years. And while we can't fully explain it, I think we can better understand what it is that we can't fully understand. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, think of it this way. Here's a two-dimensional plane. And then here's an object with three dimensions that's going to pass through the 2D plane. Okay, right. From this perspective, the 3D object's above and below the plane. So now it makes sense, but imagine you were a 2D person stuck on the 2D plane. What would you see? I don't know. What would I see? Well, it would look like this. Oh, yeah, okay. From this perspective, it looks impossible. It's one object, and then, then two objects, and then three. But in reality, they're all one, just not in a way you're capable of understanding. Now, let's take this whole thing as a visual analogy for how we experience God. The claim in the Bible is that God is transcendent, a divine being through whom we live and move and have our being. Or, as God says, I am. Okay, but I live here in this universe, so when God appears, it will make sense in some ways, but in other ways, it will break my categories. Exactly. This happens all the time when people encounter the God of the Bible. So let's look first at how this happens in the Hebrew Scriptures. Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, God appears in complicated ways that don't quite fit our categories. One common way this happens is with God's attributes. So an attribute is a way to describe what something is like. For example, a soccer ball is round. Right. Or God is wise. Yeah, great. Let's take God's wisdom. So the book of Proverbs says that God created the world by his wisdom. But then there are also poems in the book of Proverbs that describe God's wisdom as a person, a co-worker through whom God architected the universe. So God's attribute becomes a separate character? Yeah. This also happens with God's glory, which sometimes appears as a human figure on a throne that's engulfed in fire. Or take God's word, which he can speak to people, but sometimes his word appears like a person. Wait, so God's attributes have become new little gods? No, no. The biblical authors believe there's only one all-powerful God. But they're comfortable talking about them as different characters. Yeah, this is part of the way that the biblical authors portray the one God's complex identity. They're God's attributes and also distinct from God. Distinct from God and also God. Yes. Once we learn to spot that way of talking about God's identity, you begin to see it all over the scriptures. In fact, you find it in the first sentences of the Bible that mention the Spirit of God. So the opening line of the Bible is pretty familiar. In the beginning, God created. But then keep reading. Who is it that we see within creation hovering over the waters? The Spirit of God. Yeah, so the Spirit refers to God's personal presence and energy that we can interact with here within creation. And so the Bible can refer to God's Spirit as distinct from God. Distinct from God and also God. It's God's Spirit. And while this sounds strange from our point of view, this complexity is what the biblical authors are trying to get us to see. So we've looked at God's attributes and God's Spirit. Now let's make our last stop exploring God's complex identity in the Hebrew Scriptures with a character called the Son of Man. So in the Bible, there's only one God that people are to worship, which makes this story in the book of Daniel 
really surprising. Daniel has a dream about a human figure called the Son of Man, which means a member of humanity. And Daniel dreams about this human getting elevated on a cloud, up and then higher up. Up into God space. Yes, and then this human sits at the right hand of God's heavenly throne, and all humanity worships this human alongside God. A human where I expect to see God. Yeah, this human is a part of God's identity. This vision is about the climactic hope of the whole biblical story. God and humanity become one so they can rule the world together as one. So the Son of Man is distinct from God and also God. Exactly. So think back over everything we've looked at. In the Hebrew Scriptures, God's identity is complex. And so when Jesus' followers encountered God as the Father, Son, and the Spirit, they already had categories for how these could all be the one God of the Bible. Okay, let's talk about that. Okay, so in the New Testament, we'll watch the rest of that video in two weeks. Come on, come on, come on back. So we're going to sing now. The first song we'll sing is The Goodness of God, one of my favorite songs. Now, this is a song that was written by, to most of us in this room, young people. And it resonates with young people. But you know what? I think it resonates even more to old people like me because there's some words in it. Things like, all my life, you have been faithful. Those who have lived a long time have seen that for a long period of time. We really resonate with that. And it also says, with every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. You know, those that are old realize that we're not going to live forever. We have a limited number of breaths. So while we have the chance, we will sing of the goodness of God. So those of you that are older, I challenge you to think about those words, and I bet you won't get choked, you will get choked up when you sing this song. So let's stand together and sing together.
Our scripture reading this morning is from Galatians 6, 1 through 10. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens, and in this way, obey the law of Christ. If you think you are important to help someone, or if you are too important to help someone, you are only fooling yourself. You are not that important. Pay careful attention to your own work, for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done, and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else. For we are each responsible for our own conduct. Those who are taught the word of God should provide for their teachers, sharing all good things with them. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from, the sinful, from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. This time, kids in 4K through second grade are dismissed for Children's Church if they want to go to that. There have been a lot of famous people throughout church history, going all the way back, like people who are famous for their spirituality or all these things, but there may be no one more interesting to me than this man who was from the 400s, and his name was Simeon the Stylite. And the first thing you might notice about Simeon is he has this strange descriptor, the Stylite. We often see people in, in ancient history have that, right? We have, like, Alexander the Great, and Attila the Hun, and Ivan the Terrible. Right? But, like, we know what words like the Great mean and, and terrible. We know what those mean. We know, what, we know who the Huns were. But it may, however, be a little bit less obvious why Simeon is called the Stylite. And that word stylite, or word style, comes from the, the Greek word for pillar. And he called Simeon the stylite, because he spent the last 30 years of his life living on top of a 60-foot pillar. It's like a 6-foot diameter pillar in the middle of the Syrian desert, living on top of the pillar by himself. He would get food and drink from his disciples down below, who would put food and drink in a basket and hoist it up on a, on a pulley system. And that's how he, he lived for, for 30 years. Like, like I like alone time. Right? But even that's a little bit crazy. Right? Like, like, you might be inclined to ask, like, why on earth would someone want to live on top of a pillar by themselves for, for 30 years in the middle of a desert? Right? And Simeon, like, he started out his life in 
as a fairly typical monk. He joined a monastery, and he lived in this monastery for, for 10 years. But while in the monastery, Simeon engaged in increasingly ascetic practices, including one time abstaining from all food for the 40 days of Lent. And so the story goes, I have no way of actually confirming this, but I'm trusting people I read. They, they said that the other monks became kind of resentful that they couldn't match his, his zeal and his passion until so they asked him to leave the monastery. So he started just kind of wandering the desert, kind of always seeking to deny his own physical desire, desires. But then he got this reputation then of being this extreme ascetic, ascetic and it attracted a large number of followers. He had all kinds of people coming up to him, asking him questions and requesting spiritual help as he wandered the desert. And Simeon found all this asking for help frustrating. He started to be by himself so he could be focused on God. And so one day he was wandering. He came across a, a pillar and he climbed up on top of it in order to get some solitude and some time to meditate and to pray. And the story goes again that he enjoyed that quiet so much that he just refused to come down. The only time he would come down was to mount increasingly tall pillars before setting himself atop this 60-foot pillar for the final 60 or final 30 years of his life. And I share all this because the, the story of Simeon the Stylite raises an important question. Namely, what does ultimately the spirit-guided life look like? In the last half of the book of Galatians that we've been going through over the last couple months, Paul's been, been talking about the importance of, of letting the Holy Spirit guide your life. In the passage we heard this morning, he says, in verse 8, those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So what does it look like to live to please the Spirit? It's the life that pleases the Spirit, one like Simeon's, where he does everything he can to just withdraw from the world and, and deny himself in order to more deeply commune with God? It's living on top of a pillar in the desert, God's ideal version of the Christian life. Or is there a different way to, to live a life that is spirit-guided, that pleases the spirit? And what we see Paul telling us in, in Galatians 6, in the, in the passage we just heard, that, that the spirit-guided life is it's not just about what goes on inside your heart. The spirit-guided life is not just, not only about your private, personal relationship with God. Right? Like, that's important, absolutely. Like, we shouldn't deny that. Like, what goes on in your heart is hugely important. We can't deny the importance of the inward work of the Spirit. But the inward work of the Spirit should manifest itself in outward acts of, of doing good for others. That's what we see in this passage in Galatians 6. The last week, we looked at the end of Galatians chapter 5, and we saw how, how the Holy Spirit works inside of us on the heart level to give us new desires and to lead us into an awareness of our sin and to produce the fruit of the Spirit in our hearts. Last week we saw how by the power of the Spirit we become people who are loving and joyful and peaceful and 
patient, excuse me, and kind and good and faithful and gentle and self-controlled. But in today's passage, Paul makes it clear that those attitudes shouldn't just stop at being inward truths. They should manifest themselves in outward act of good toward others. That the Spirit doesn't just make us people with loving hearts. The Spirit makes us people who do acts of love toward others. Philip Reichen puts it this way. The Holy Spirit does not produce this fruit for our private enjoyment. True spirituality is not an individualistic quest of self-fulfillment the kind of thing one has to climb to the top of a pillar to discover. The life of the Spirit flourishes for the sake of others. It is not experienced in private primarily, but exercised in public. Therefore, it does not grow in isolation, but within the community of faith. Spiritual life is meant to be shared. It is less like a fruit tree hidden away somewhere in a secret garden and more like one that grows in a public park. And verse 10, that the last verse we heard this morning, is, it's ultimately like Paul's final words in like the, the body of the letter. He's going to go on in verse 11 to some kind of closing remarks and some greeting, but verse 10 is the final verse and really the body of the letter. It's Paul's one final summary command to wrap up everything he said. That's what he says in in Galatians 6, verse 10, he says, therefore, and that therefore points back to the entire letter, like in light of everything he said up until this point, he says, therefore, this is what matters, therefore, whenever we have opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. at the inward working of the Holy Spirit, which we receive when we place our faith in Jesus, manifests itself in outward acts of, of good towards everyone. And it's, it's noteworthy that this is not the only place that Paul brings a letter to a close by urging his readers to do good to others. I mentioned earlier, and it's kind of this kind of weird, like, divine providence that I could not have planned myself. Like this week's scripture memory verse from 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 through 17. And next week it's 18 through 22. And those verses are, are Paul's final word to the Thessalonians before he goes to the conclusion. And just as in our passage in Galatians, Paul's final words... To, to Galatia are do good to others. So here in 1 Thessalonians, Paul's final words are remarkably similar. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 through 15, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. On a side note, I've struggled all week memorizing this verse because in Galatians, it's like to everyone and especially the household of faith, right? So it's everyone first and then Christians. And then here it's good to one another and to everyone. He like flips the order. Right? So I 
broken my mind a little bit. Right? But the idea is the same, right? Do good to everyone. That's the main idea, right? And like Paul wraps up both of these letters with this command, this urging to do good to everyone. Again, like Galatians 6.10, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially those of the family of faith. So do good to, to everyone, especially fellow Christians. Right? So in the biggest of, of big picture view, Paul's guidance for how to live the Christian life, right? from the most zoomed out perspective, is just do good to everyone. But we can't forget the therefore that starts off this verse. That the command to do good to everyone is only given in light of everything that Paul has already said in this letter. Specifically, that the only way to be made right with God is through faith in Jesus. This, this doing good to others is not a means to earn God's favor or, or earn our way into heaven. It's only the Spirit at work in us that enables us to do good. And doing good isn't about just doing things that look good through sheer force of willpower, even though your motives are bad. Doing good to everyone is all about being directed by the Holy Spirit who, who gives us new desire to do these good deeds. We do good to others because God has been, been good to us in Jesus and we want to extend that, that goodness and the love of God to others in return. We do good to others in response to the good that God has done to us first. In the rest of this passage, Paul, Paul gives us kind of four specific ways that we can do good to others, especially those of the family of faith. And he, he gives us the first one in verse 1, where he says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly, should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Other translations say, you who are godly should restore that person in a spirit of gentleness. So one of the ways that we do good to others is by restoring them when they fall into sin. We talked last week about the importance of, of confessing sin, part of being led by the Spirit in that sermon, I, I touched briefly on the importance of, of also being people who, who, when we hear sin confess, we respond with grace and humility and gentleness. And here, Paul makes that command directly. If another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. There are some commands that Different churches of different eras and different streams of Christianity have historically been better or worse at obeying. And I think right, that the Western Protestant evangelical church of the 21st century is one that like, we're not like, very good at obeying this command. I mean we in like, the broadest sense, but like we're not great at restoring people who have fallen into sin. We are, as I said last week, we are slow to confess. But we're often slow to confess because we don't really believe that the people we would confess to would obey this verse. 
We don't, we don't believe that we would be gently and humbly restored. We feel like we'd be judged. And ultimately, this verse, verse 1, is, is not even talking about if someone confesses sin to you. Many translations say if someone is caught in sin. It's a little easier to show, to show grace and to confess when, when someone comes broken and contrite right, and confesses to you. It's easier to show grace to that person. But when someone's just caught red-handed, it's so easy to be quick to catch judgment and, and shame them. We're quick to gossip behind their backs. We're, we're quick to remove ourselves from them. And we are slow to gently and humbly like, help that person back on to the right path. We're slow to restore those who are caught in sin. That's a true and kind of broader culture as well. North is more clear than in the rise of what's been dubbed cancel culture. You say the wrong thing in public or online, and you run the risk of ruining your career, of, of having your, your life canceled. Even things you said years and years ago are held against you. A couple years ago, the, a pitcher for the Brewers, Josh Hader, was, was pitching in the All-Star game, and during the All-Star game, some, someone dug up some tweet that he had tweeted when he was 17 years old. And to be clear, these tweets were quite inappropriate. They said racist things and inappropriate things. Like, it's not like he was said some stuff that was maybe questionable. They were outright bad things he said. But they're dug up and they're hoisted up, you know, eight years later. And despite the fact that that hater stood in front of his locker and he, he said this, he said, it was something that happened when I was 17 years old. As a child, I was immature. I obviously said some things that were inexcusable, but that doesn't reflect on who I am as a person today. And he had black teammates, the fact that he used racist language in those tweets, he had black teammates who offered their support and, and said that it doesn't reflect the Josh hater they know. And yet despite that, much of the media and the public discourse around hater had, had no interest in offering him forgiveness. No interest in showing him grace for something he said as a dumb 17-year-old years and years ago. They wanted Hader to, to suffer for what he had said as a high school kid. And there are many more stories just like Hader's. I'm, just, I'm so glad that like, the stuff I said to my friends in high school like, are not on the internet somewhere. Right? The comedian Nate Bergetzi has a joke where he's talking about how he's... he's Thankful he grew up right before the advent of the internet, and he's obviously playing it for jokes, and it's funny, but he has a line in there that, that's true and weighty. He says, what I did in high school is a rumor. It's not going to ruin my life. And that's just not true anymore. Right? So much of, so many lives have been ruined because of dumb stuff someone did in high school that's now been recorded for all time on the internet. And as a culture, we're all too happy to, to drudge it up years later and ruin your life for something you said years ago. As a culture, we have very little interest in restoring people caught in sin. Even sin committed years and years ago, much less present and ongoing sin. Yet as Christians, we're, we're called to be different. We're called to restore those who are caught in sin.
And it's hard, right? We see someone doing wrong, and like, there's this sense of justice that wells up in us. Like, we naturally want to like, see that person get what they deserve for those, whatever, that sin. Like, it goes against our natural inclination to be people who gently and humbly restore people. Yeah, that's what Paul called us to do in verse 1. You who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back on to the right path. Question then becomes like if it's against our nature, how can we do this? How can we overcome our natural inclination to seek judgment and punishment and retribution and instead seek to gently and humbly restore? And the answer, as it so often does, starts with remembering Jesus. Remembering how Jesus treated us. A while back, some of us did a study on Dane Ortland's book. Gentle and lowly. And that whole book is a reflection on Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, where Jesus says this. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Just notice how much overlap there, especially with verse 29, where Jesus says, I am humble and, and gentle at heart. And compare that with Paul's command. You who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back on to the right path. But the reason we can gently and humbly restore others because we have an example in the person of Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit working inside of us to make us people who look and act more like Jesus. If we are going to gently and humbly restore others, we first must remember how, how Jesus humbled himself by coming to earth and how he was gentle with us in our own sin despite the fact that we had rejected God and committed all kinds of sin ourselves and had done nothing to earn God's favor and nothing to deserve a second chance, Jesus humbled himself when he came to earth. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, in order to provide a way for our sins to be forgiven. And when he came, he didn't come raging at us. He didn't come saying, like, how dare you? Or what were you thinking? He didn't come saying, I'm disappointed, but if you really try this time, I'll give you one more chance. Just don't blow it. No, he didn't. He came gently. In gentle and lowly, Orland puts it this way. Meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy. Not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Jesus wants nothing more than to restore broken sinners to fellowship with God. How thankful should each of us who have experienced that grace be that he is like that, 
But then in response, would we be that for others? Would we be people who are known for, for gently and humbly restoring people who are caught in sin? Would we have such a reputation for showing grace to those caught in sin that people would increasingly feel free to come and confess their sins to us? Would we be people whose most natural posture is, is not pointed fingers, but open arms? I'm like, I know, there's a thousand objections. Like, no, that doesn't mean excusing or justifying or ignoring sin. No, that doesn't mean enabling or, or being abused by someone who's repeatedly sinned against you. But all too often, we allow those objections to, to stand in the way of us seeking to restore others. With the, the default setting of our heart be restoration first. We be people who gently and humbly restore those caught in sin. It's one way we can do good to others. We see another way of doing good to others in verse 2. Paul says, share each other's burdens. And in this way, obey the law of Christ. Another way we do good to others is by bearing each other's burdens. In fact, Paul says that by bearing other bur- others' burdens, we, we obey the whole law of Christ. And earlier Paul said that the law can be summed up by Serving one another in love. So bearing each other's burdens is just another way of saying the same thing, of, of serving each other in love. And again, this is modeled for us by Jesus and his words in Matthew 11. Here again what he says. Come to me, all you, are, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. This act of, of doing good to others by, by bearing burdens is, is modeled for us first and foremost by Jesus. He first and foremost bore our greatest burden, which is our sin. As John Bunyan famously portrayed in Pilgrim Progress, there's no greater burden that we bear than the weight of our own sin. And Jesus bore that burden for us by dying on the cross for our sins. But in addition to, to bearing our great burden for us, he also modeled for us how to bear the burden of others. Like we can't bear the weight of other people's sins. Only Jesus can do that. But we can come alongside others and, and help them bear other burdens. Like burdens of, of sickness and joblessness and grief and home or car repair. Burdens of depression and failure and anxiety and loneliness. Like we can come alongside and bear those burdens. And sometimes those burdens, bearing those burdens look very practical. Right? It's making a meal or it's helping with a repair or it's offering babysitting to a burnt out single mom or whatever it is. Sometimes bearing those burdens looks more relational. It's just spending time alongside someone. It's praying for someone. It's, it's writing an encouraging letter to someone. But no matter what 
the bearing of a burden looks like in a given situation, it always involves relational closeness. Tim Keller puts it this way. You cannot help with a burden unless you come very close to the burdened person, standing virtually in their shoes and putting your strength under the burden so that the weight is distributed on both of you, lightening the load of the other. If we're going to be people who do this, who bear burdens of one another, we need to be people who are relationally connected, who are in community with one another. You can't bear another burdens from arm's length. But we be people who, who draw close to one another, who, who spend time together. Would we be people who are so involved in each other's lives that we can see when there's burdens that need bearing and then step in and bear those burdens alongside them. A third way we, we do good to others is seen in verse 4, where Paul says, Pay careful attention to your own work, for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done, and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else. Verse 5, Paul goes on to say, We are each responsible for our own conduct. But sometimes one of, the, one of the best things that we can do for others and for ourselves is to pay careful attention to our own work right? and not compare ourselves to others. We are to own our own conduct. We are to own our own actions. And at first it kind of seems like a contradiction to the command of, of bearing one another's burdens. Right? How do you bear one another's burdens while also focusing on your own conduct. That the answer boils down to like, the reasons why we compare ourselves to others. Paul touched on this at the end of chapter 5 when he said, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Like, often we compare ourselves to others and the result is that we become conceited. Like, oh, look how much better than that person I am. Or we compare ourselves to the other, and the result is we, we envy each other. Like, why can't I have the skills or the talent or the wealth of that person? When we do that, we, we burden those around us. And we burden ourselves with the weight of, of this comparison. But when we own our own conduct, when we pay attention to our own work, we free ourselves and those around us from that burden. Often one of the best ways to do good to others is to simply live the life God has called you to live as faithfully as possible. Bless others by, by doing the job God has given you to do and doing it well. Do good to others by, by modeling a morally upright life. Do good to others by not letting yourself be crushed under the weight of comparing yourselves to others. Trust that God has gifted you with gifts he wants you to have. Trust that God has placed you in the position you're in right now for his good purpose instead of comparing and wishing you were somewhere else. Like, and I know this is hard. Like, I'm preaching this to myself much as to anyone right now. Like, I really like going to conferences and events and meetings with other pastors. Right? But it's hard in those events to, to not look around and say like, man, I I wish I could articulate like that guy. Or I wish I could be as dynamic as that guy. Or I wish I had the re relational warmth of that person. 
I wish I was as smart as that person. Like, it's so hard not to compare. Or an example from another area of life, like, we like enjoy watching Bluey with our kids sometimes. That's well written, it's enjoyable, but like, the dad in that show is at the high bar, man. That dad is always up for whatever the kids want to do. He's playing obnoxious games. And Elijah wants to play catch for the 4,000th time that day, and I'm out. Like, I can't live up to that dad in Bluey. It's easy to compare. But we must remember that God has made us for a purpose. He's given us work to do. One of the best things we can do is to, to do the work God has given us to do with the gifting God has given us for the good of others. Finally, in verse 9, we see one last way of, of doing good to others, and that's persevering. Right? Paul says in verse 9, Let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. The final way we do good to others is by persevering, by, by not getting tired of doing what is good. Sometimes our biggest struggle in doing what is good is that it just doesn't seem to pay off. We don't see the reward for doing good. Why do I keep doing this? I don't see any payoff for this. Paul assured us that at just the right time, we will reap a harvest. It's interesting that Paul uses that phrase, at just the right time. The same phrase he used back in Galatians 4 when he said, at just the right time, God sent his son. Even though for those who had been waiting for a Messiah for a long time, it sure felt like it took a long time. It took too long for God to send the Messiah. God sent him at, at just the right time. And likewise here, Paul said that, or God said that, just the right time, like our doing good will reap a harvest. The way we like, keep persevering and doing good is by keeping our eye fixed on the future glory that awaits all of us who are in Jesus. That one day they're coming in new heavens and a new earth. And all of us who live by the power of the Spirit that we receive by trusting in Jesus will we'll live in that glory. We persevere in doing good by keeping our eyes fixed on a future glory that awaits us. As we we go here, go from here today. Paul's final words in the body of this letter. Whenever you have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially those of the family of God. Would that be true of us? Would we be people who do good to others? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all the, the good you've done to us. As we sang earlier, all our lives you have been faithful, and so we will sing of your goodness. And in light of all the ways you've been good to us, first and foremost, in sending your Son to die for us, would we now go and would we do good to others? Pray this all in Jesus' name.
you go from here now, would you go remembering all the good God has done for you, and would you go doing good to others? You are dismissed.